good issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 206 of the Standard Issue Podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am more than okay that Kate Bush is running up that top 10. Yeah, this is apropos our conversation the other day. Indeed, about stranger things, lots of teenagers going to their parents. Have you ever heard of a woman called Kate Bush? She's quite good and she's currently at number eight in the UK charts, which is exciting because the highest position running up that hill ever reach was number three. So she's nearly topping it. Interesting. Mm. Man, I love Kate Bush. She's cool. Apparently she's really chuffed that Stranger Things has thrown her back into the limelight. Is she? Kate Bush was never that chuffed being in the limelight in the first place, was she? She's released a statement about how chuffed she is. Maybe she's just been looking at that diaphanous chiffon and going, this isn't going to float itself. I need to do some wafting. (laughs) I mean, if she wanted some money, she could just fucking tour again, like what, once every 20 years. It's not satisfactory for me. (laughs) Where should we go and see Kate Bush? We're going to see Bruce Springsteen in Rome. Where would you ideally see Kate Bush? Um, Yeah, I'm I'm really into this this new go and see someone at a landmark thing. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, Pompeii would be good, wouldn't it? I I I thought Pompeii, but you want somewhere windy as well. Uh, well, Pompeii is like a ruin, so uh, I mean, absolutely yes. But also, of course, she's going to need to plug a lot of shit in. Although Pink Floyd played there, and they had to plug a lot of shit in as well. I mean, the ground is literally lava. I don't understand science, <laughs> but I assume you can get some energy from that. <laughs> yeah, I, but what I mean is, a lot of the spa- available space you've got to put people in. I'm guessing you've got to put a lot of fucking amps and backstage and you know roadie type stuff. That's but true. yeah, nice acoustic gig somewhere from Kate Bush. Top of the Eiffel Tower. Not many people could get there. <laughs> I'm going to work on it. Anyway, I'm Hannah Dunleavy, and I discovered at the weekend that my brother's dog barks every time someone says Hitler, <laughs> which I don't often use as a rule, although now, yeah. Yeah, are you just trying to get Hitler into the conversation all the time? Yeah. Well, we discovered this because my mum was watching a bit of Jubilee stuff, and my brother's dog was, was there. They look after each other, my mum and my brother's dog. She said every time a horse came on the telly, which was quite a lot, the dog went mental. And then when the Queen was talking to Paddington, the dog went mental and she couldn't work out if it was the Queen or the Paddington that the dog didn't like. But then a picture of Hitler came up and the dog went mental. And then she said to me, the dog's barking at Hitler. And she went mental again. And we just kept saying Hitler and the dog was going crazy. And he hasn't trained her to do this. I have to say, it's it's not a reverse Count Dankula situation going on. I'm curious about why Doggo has decided to start barking at evil historical figures. But also Hitler. But also why there was a picture of Hitler during the Platy Jubes. I think it was something to do with just a reminder of how long the Queen's been alive. <laughs> she knew this guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's a picture of Idi Amin. Here's a picture of Robert Mugabe. Here's a picture of Hitler. Coming up, Natalie Lee, a.k.a. Star- it's really hard to segue after Hitler chat, isn't it? <laughs> Coming up, Natalie Lee, a.k.a. Let's just go to awkward silence and then, and then go. Coming up, Natalie Lee, a.k.a. Style Me Sunday, and I talk sex, ditching the shame around it, and the absolute joy of feeling myself. That, by the way, is Nat's new book, rather than a self-handsy Noonan. Okay, now I'm going to try something here, and I don't know if it's going to work, so you're just going to have to bear with me. And, talking to Hitler, 
Da, 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 da. I talked to Teresa Heskins, director and co-writer of a new play, da, 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 da. Tom, Dick and Harry, which is about, da, 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 da. you've guessed it, the true story of the escape from Stalag Luft 3. So Hannah had options there. She could, she could do that, which I mean... Well done. Well done, pal. You absolutely smashed it. Or she was going to try to make the noise that soil falling out of trousers would make as it hits the ground. Or I was going to dig a really long hole and just emerge in your lounge (laughs) while you were speaking. Which would be very exciting. A little bit disruptive for me, but maybe not great for a podcast. I think you made the right choice, mate. Quite disruptive for the people who live downstairs as well. That is true. And in Rated or Dated, there's a lovely example of why you should always help a woman with a buggy when you first see her struggling as we watch The Untouchables. Indeed. But first, fucking hell. (laughs) It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Cousting. Bush Telegraph. Welcome to the Bush Telegraph. Fancy using perfectly normal behaviour for a four-year-old to make a political point, Mick? No. Nah, me neither. Although, you know, maybe Louis would make a better Prime Minister. Any thoughts on that, Hannah? (laughs) Well, that was a wild start to the week in Westminster, right? (laughs) Yep. And yes, you can say that Boris Johnson survived a vote of no confidence by Conservative MPs. But you can also say that Nick Frost's character survived Shaun of the Dead. (laughs) In the anonymous vote, 58.2% of Tory MPs said they backed Johnson as PM, which means that 41.8% don't. Thanks, maths. (laughs) That means that he lost more votes than Theresa May did when she faced a vote of no confidence in 2018. May, apparently, voted in a ball gown. (laughs) I'm guessing because she was on her way to something else, but I'm hoping that it means that she's continuing to morph into a really excellent one-woman play about revenge. She's gone Shakespearean. I love it. (laughs) Now, if Theresa May is a one-woman play, then the piece of interpretive theatre that many years ago my friend Jane, actually our friend Jane, and I had to go and see in a swimming pool. That's Nadine Dorries. <laughs> in the few hours between the announcement of the vote and the result, Dorries tried her best to ignite a civil war by tweeting a thread that you've no doubt read. <laughs> Bloody hell. <laughs> in it, she accuses Jeremy Hunt and by implication the government of being woefully prepared for the pandemic. I have nothing but a series of facial expressions. <laughs> and this is a podcast, so let's move swiftly on. Other Johnson supporters were also out in force arguing that Johnson is a well good PM and has made <laughs> sweeping changes to the culture of government. And if Nadine Doris's performance was anything to go by, Johnson has got rid of Friday cocktails after work and replaced them with Monday morning mojitos. Oh, I could go for a mojito. <laughs> <laughs> it's like I'm in the room with a more news as we slide further into the abyss. Oh my goodness. Oh my goodness, Hannah. Bad news for the country right now? Potentially good news if there's an election? I don't know. I've given up on good news and our government ever going hand in hand. I think, you know, he's going to stumble on for a bit, isn't he? But I think this is the beginning of the end. But I also think that anyone who wants to take over his job 
wants to take over his job as close as possible to the next election. Yeah, yeah. They want to put as much distance between this and them as humanly possible. So I think he will go, but just not at the minute. It's like, and we are going to talk about this later in Rated or Dated, but it is like that scene from The Untouchables. If this is the beginning of the end, he's going very slowly down the stairs in a buggy. Yeah. For fuck's yeah. sake, get on with it. Come on. Uh, and Nadine Doris is going to throw herself to the ground at the end and catch him. Oh, dear. So let's talk, Hannah, about some people who were definitely working their asses off during the pandemic. That'll be nurses. Now, nurses being knackered might not be anything new, and it certainly comes as no surprise after two and a half years of hell, working on the front line in a pandemic, in an NHS already being run at its limit Mm pre-pandemic. And just in case Tom Harwood is listening, pre-pandemic means before the pandemic. I know, it is tricky. Anyway, back to the people who work their asses off. The nurses are, understandably, as knackered as the NHS itself, and that tiredness is having a huge impact. A recent survey of more than 20,000 frontline staff by the Royal College of Nursing, that's the world's largest union and professional body for nursing, has found that demoralised nurses are being driven out of the profession, with 25,000 registered nurses leaving just last year. That's more than were trained domestically in the same year, by the way. So thank fuck for international nurses. Let's make sure they feel their value. Oh, God. Yeah. Because even though, you know, we're not huge fans of masks on standard issue, even I can work out that the less nurses there are, and four out of five of the survey's respondents said staffing levels on their last shift were not enough to meet all the needs and dependency of their patients, the more tired and stressed and pushed beyond their limits the ones that remain will be. And also what that maths means for patient care. I mean, none of this is making me like maths anymore because it's all bad news. The government in England claims to be over halfway to recruiting the 50,000 extra nurses it's promised by 2024. But in her keynote speech at the RCN annual congress this week, the union's general secretary, Pat McCullen, will say, I love this, well, it's future, will say, what if she changes her mind? More news (laughs) if it happens. Anyway, she's supposed to say... Up and just go, but just be Prince Louis, like, just with her hands up like that. Yeah, totally. She's just, you know, being told to stop pulling faces and making funny noises. That might happen, but also this should happen. She's going to say, to those from government listening to my words, if I do say them... No, she's not. (laughs) (laughs) To those from government listening to my words, we have had enough. The patients and those we care for have had enough. We are tired fed up, demoralised, and some of us are leaving the profession because we have lost hope. Yeah, that's depressing, isn't it? It is. And quite terrifying. Yeah, it's really scary. It is really scary. And, you know, Hannah, you and I have talked about this before. We've both been journalists for at least 104 years, Mm. and we've lived in this society for almost as long. And Mm. the NHS being in crisis isn't anything new. And panic-driven headlines about the NHS in crisis isn't anything new. But it's fucked now. It is genuinely fucked now. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely is. Please get me out of this slump, Hannah. So, quick question, Mickey. 
Are you the flavour of human that mosquitoes find irresistible? You know, you know damn well I'm delicious. <laughs> yeah, me too. I've always said to people that the best the best defence against mosquitoes is just to sit next to me <laughs> because they're just like, oh, she's nice. Let's just bite her on the face, fully on the face. Let's make it, see if we can make her eye close up so she looks like she's got a black eye. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, yeah, you're obviously more delicious than me. Well, I have some good news. Scientists have found a way to help people avoid the unwanted attention of those bitey little fuckers. Look at you, using their Latin name. <laughs> <laughs> and that is to kill them all. Yes! Yes! <laughs> Not really. <laughs> you did a snort. I did a snort. We're cutting that out. Not really. <laughs> but it's a nice dream. Instead... Scientists have discovered that mosquitoes are attracted to the colour red. Okay. Which is apparently the colour that they see all humans. Say what you like about mozzies, but they're not racist. <laughs> is that a heat thing? Is that a heat thing? Uh, yes, it's because they don't really see. They, they, they smell and sense. Okay. And I realise that there is an element of, but what was she wearing <laughs> in this? But if you want to avoid drawing the attention of mosquitoes, you shouldn't wear red. You had red hair for years. I've learnt too late, Mickey, clearly. <laughs> or oddly, cyan, which they also find irresistible. And do you know when I worked on a subdesk, I used the word cyan about five <laughs> times a day. And I think that this is probably the first time I've used it in a decade. You and printers, they're the only things that use the word cyan. And now yeah. I'm upset that you've actually dyed your hair cyan because now the mosquitoes <laughs> are still going to find you irresistible. Anyway, Jeffrey Riffle, that's a good name. It's an excellent name. Professor of biology at the University of Washington said, quote, Imagine you're on a sidewalk and you smell pie crust and cinnamon. Or, if you're British, a Greg's or a spliff. <laughs> I added that bit. No! <laughs> That's probably a sign that there's a bakery nearby and you might start looking around for it. Here, we started to learn what visual elements that mosquitoes are looking for after smelling their own version of a bakery. Manchester United top, clearly. It's an interesting story, but it has just made me hungry. <laughs> <laughs> now Greg's. I really want a Greg's vegan sausage roll. Mm. Cheese and onion pasty. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> More news next time. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we ask... Who does an illness that purely affects women really need as experts? As ever, absolutely no prizes, <laughs> Hannah, for guessing how many women are on the European Endometriosis League's expert panel for its forthcoming Endometriosis Master class in November. Mm. Because it is, in fact, a manal, like you hadn't already worked that out. Not one woman to speak about women's bodies. I'm not even angry. I'm just disappointed. That is a lie. I am constantly fucking <laughs> furious about this shit. <laughs> Probably something to do with my womb. I best ask a man. Anyway, it's currently the kind of fury I imagine would happen if an all-female panel ran a masterclass on erectile dysfunction or testicular cancer or vasectomies or, well, anything at all, really. 
Look, to recap, endometriosis or endo is a condition where tissue similar to the lining of the womb starts to grow in other places, such as the ovaries and fallopian tubes. It can affect women of any age. It is a long-term chronic condition that can have a significant debilitating impact on a woman's life. It is massively dismissed and indeed simply just missed by doctors. Until very recently, an official diagnosis would only be given after minor surgery. Basically, women have long been told to shut up and put up with pelvic pain from endo by mostly male doctors, despite the fact that nearly 10% of women develop endo after puberty. Because, as we have covered extensively on the podcast, and will continue to cover extensively on the podcast, women are ignored and dismissed by medicine. I've done a capital M for medicine there, Hannah. Mm. Big medicine. <laughs> Whenever people say big, it always reminds me that someone once accused Caroline Cuyada Perez of working for Big Vagina. <laughs> and she does. <laughs> so this all-male panel to talk about an all-female health issue just underlines how very much. Women are ignored by medicine. Or to quote Dr. Jennifer Gunter, author of the Vagina Bible, Dude! <laughs> yeah. I believe she works for Big Vagina too. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by social media goddess, shame buster, an all-round celebration of being a woman, Natalie Lee. Nat, hello. Hello, thank you so much for having me on. Thanks for coming on. Now, I'm going to start with a biggie. Natalie, we hear a lot about how damaging social media can be for our mental health and particularly the mental health of girls and young women. And yet you have somehow managed to harness social media as a force for good. How? Oh, great question to start us off. <laughs> I have never really seen social media as this huge thing of negativity. I've always seen it as something very useful. I have learned a hell of a lot through social media. You know, talking about body positivity, sex positivity, it's just really opened my eyes to so many things that I, before social media, was so closed off to. So I have really used it to kind of expand my knowledge, expand my brain. I've sought out those areas that are really, really fucking useful and just stayed away from the stuff that has had any sort of negative impact on my mental health. You know, I have no fucking desire to watch people exercise. <laughs> Who the fuck, like, follows those sort of accounts? So I'm not interested in before and after pics and all of that kind of shit. And it works for me, you know? I think it's been incredibly incredibly positive for me i love that you've used it as a tool instead of taking it and adding it to the negative voices in your head exactly and that's how i see it you have to use things to suit you you know don't just accept that oh my god like social media is terrible have boundaries actually seek out the stuff you're hungry for the knowledge there's such a wealth of knowledge and creativity online. It's madness if you don't tap into that side of it. Yeah, and I think the other thing that you've done is you have added your voice as more positivity. So you've absolutely done that on Instagram as Style Me Sunday. But now you've written a book. So tell me about feeling myself and why you decided to write it. 
my heart is on the line with this book mm. so it feels very very scary and vulnerable and you're right look every time I sort of do a post I think about whether this is useful to whoever is receiving it but there there is some stuff that you can't really write in a caption on mm. Instagram. Mm. There's some stuff that is just a little bit too deep, even for Instagram. <laughs> a little bit meaty. <laughs> yes, a little bit meaty. And you can't give texture and colour to it. And give it what it deserves. So I always knew that I had a book in me. I was just really scared of doing it. I held it back for quite a long time. I was my own stumbling block in how long it's taken me to actually get this out there and publish. It's about sexual shame and oh, I talk about trauma. I talk about childhood, talk about the first time I have a sexual experience, talk about sex in long-term relationships, sex after the long-term relationship ends, the impact motherhood has on your sex life and sexuality and yeah, everything in between. I talk about sexuality as well. There's a lot in there that is very, it's just, I'm a bit scared, as I said, I am a bit scared. It's just really good though to actually use my voice and have that truth out there I think because that is also part of the process of me releasing the shame I think so many women feel shame around sex shame for just being a woman and having tits and having a body and yeah. having a bloody vulva and a vagina shame for sexual experiences that they were involved in and shame for things that have been done to us that we didn't necessarily give consent for. Mm -hmm. So there's so much shame surrounding sex with women that I really wanted to put my foot in that space and try and help myself. First of all, it, you know, this is a this has definitely been a kind of healing journey. I don't, I'm sorry to use that cliche thing. No, but, no, it reads know. as being very <laughs> cathartic, definitely. It really is. It really is. So I wanted that for myself, first of all. I wanted to not have this, this like, the skeletons in the closet anymore. Mm -hmm. The stuff that I didn't feel that I could just talk about with anyone. The stuff I was ashamed of. I wanted it out there. I wanted to not feel hostage to it anymore. And by doing that, I hope to, well, I mean, I don't, I really don't fucking hope it resonates with women, but I know it will. Yeah. I just know it will. Lots of women will resonate with it. And hopefully by doing that, it will be a process for them too of releasing the shame. Shame is such a powerful tool when it comes to keeping us women in our box, in our place, right? And I, I mean this entirely positively, you center yourself. And there is such a huge difference between centering self and being self-centered, but we're very much taught Ooh. that they're one and the same thing and they're not. Yes, yes we are. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I love that, that is beautiful. 
I never really, I, I've never really thought about that. But you're right, by talking about my story, I hope to help other women. And that's not selfish. That's nope. ultimately empowering and useful. And that's what I want to do. I want to say, look, if I can let it all out there, then so can you too. Let's start talking about this. Let's have these conversations because so many of us have very similar shared experiences. They might not be exactly the same, but we have stuff, you know, there's secrets there and stuff that we just don't feel like we can talk about. Well, actually it's not, it's not as bad as you think it will be if you start talking about this stuff. And start talking about it early as well. One of the chapters that really struck me, and this is from someone who is child-free and very happy with that decision, but is how you talk to kids about sex, how we talk to our kids about sex. Because at the moment, particularly like Britain, all buttoned up and prudish and all of that and, and just all of these taboos and the shame that stops us from talking to them the amount of my friends who are parents and like oh god I'm dreading that conversation it's like well why because it's it's a part of life and maybe I would feel entirely differently if I had to have that conversation with children of my own because the cat doesn't count but they're, they're nervous already so therefore the cat does count by the way <laughs> <laughs> um, I had him done he's got no choice in it um, but <laughs> Maybe that's the way for no. Um, but yeah, just that, that openness means that your kids are going to be more open-minded about it and also know about consent and how it's up to them what they do and don't want to do. And I feel like we've just not been giving them that for generations. But you are very candid with your children, aren't you? Yeah, maybe a bit too candid for their liking. Um, <laughs> yeah. I think you are exactly right. It is so important to break free of that, like, British sensibility of being quite prudish and reserved. It was really important for me to go past the uncomfortableness of talking about sex with my children because I know that I never talked about sex with my mum mm -hmm. she's Irish and Catholic and I went to Catholic schools all my childhood so you know I was I was very much part of that culture of don't talk about sex but if we do have to talk about sex just don't do it until you're married or at least in a long-term committed yeah. it sounds so old-fashioned oh my god just saying it. it sounds like we're in the Victorian era but it's still prevalent there is that sort of cultural aspect of it's best not to talk about sex with children because then you sexualize them well I call bollocks to that mm -hmm. because you know I think if we are very open about sex then they feel more able to ask questions one of my big bugbears is talking about naming our parts the correct names and we know that if we start talking about the correct anatomical names with our children then they're more able to be open and have conversations but also it's a safeguarding issue as well we know that if we don't have any shame about vulvas and vaginas then they're more likely to say things like oh 
somebody made me feel uncomfortable by doing this yeah. you know because they've got a name for it it's really open it's really honest and even in terms of the judicial system we know that if children know the correct names they're much more likely to get a conviction because they've been able to name their body parts correctly and that's a real big stumbling block in terms of the law and getting convictions and stuff so there's so many reasons for it it's really important and it also helps with their self-confidence and just you know general sort of demeanor that it's nothing to be ashamed of a vulva is just like a, a finger like why are we not naming yeah. it why, yeah, yeah. why is there so many different names for it it's ridiculous it's like it's like we're skirting around the issue no just fucking call it what it is let's just talk about it let's name it exactly and by by feeling that it's it's shameful we pass our hang-ups down the next generation yeah exactly and that's what i didn't want to do i didn't want to continue the cycle i really really didn't because as you said it also goes back to consent as well if we are empowered to not feel ashamed of our body parts we also feel empowered to say no yep you know, because we've been having these open conversations at home that are just everyday conversations, we know when it's not right and when it is right, you know? Totally. Knowledge is power. It really is. So we're talking about bits, we're talking about vulvas and vaginas. Let's talk about a certain photo that lost you a lot of followers, but also gained you a huge amount of positive reactions. Can you tell the listeners what I'm talking about? I'm gonna guess you're talking about the photo of me sitting on my bed with my dressing gown very much open my legs apart with a mirror between my legs and one hand up I'm basically showing that I'm very happy to be looking at my vulva in the mirror is that the one that's the budget <laughs> so so yeah that picture was very controversial as you already know it clearly triggered a lot of people who thought it was too exposing for their taste when i have done pictures like that you see the numbers drop very very quickly it goes down mm. and and i but you know what i'm like that's okay they're you know they're not my people or they're not ready for this kind of content and that's okay because this is the fucking kind of content you're going to get with me so there's no point in sticking around if you don't like to talk about vulvas and if you're not happy to celebrate your body I've got to point out, by the way, to the listeners, there is absolutely nothing explicit about this photo. You can't see anything apart from a woman having a lovely time looking at herself in the mirror. <laughs> That's all you can see. Yeah. Exactly. And I really, I really do have a lovely time. I, I mean, <laughs> I think, I think they're so fascinating. Like, I look at the texture and the changing colour. It's just really incredible. And now I'm like 41 and I'm noticing all these grey hairs oh, as mate. well. Yeah, it's like the cast of the Golden Girls down there for me. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it's like the way it changes and, and evolves is incredible. 
<laughs> it never gets dull. So initially, I got a lot of followers who decided to unfollow, which is fine by me. But then I got a lot of people saying, wow, this is incredible. This is great. This is the kind of message they want to be reminded of, to look at their vulvas. To Not only is it good in terms of your confidence and knowing what's down there without somebody else like having to describe it to you it's also really important in terms of noticing any changes or any differences from a sort of medical point of view so yeah I I would always wholeheartedly stand by it and lots of people did like it and I think in the end actually you end up gaining a lot more I ended up gaining a lot more than I lost so I'm very happy with that it absolutely underlines the need to talk about it. The fact that so many people went, oh my goodness, not for me. A photo which is so, so innocuous. Just It's just a woman with a mirror. And the fact that that <laughs> triggered so many people to be like, oh my goodness, absolutely not. I'm like, yeah, we, we, we're, still, we're still needing to talk about this, aren't we, lads? Yeah, we're still in the dark ages sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I do feel that whenever I post a semi-nude picture it's always gonna trigger people and sometimes it's for different reasons look I get it there's changes to how we feel about our bodies and if we're not feeling so great about our bodies a picture of a semi-naked woman saying look at it it's all out there can be quite confronting Mm. at some points and that's okay you know but still what I like to do is provoke thoughts And even if you were triggered in a negative way, I'm okay with that because it's still probably stuck in your mind at some point. And it might be something to revisit later that you can sort of go, "Mm, maybe there's some work to do here. Absolutely. And I think with feeling myself, you have reinvented the classic sex sales approach because it it isn't really just about sex. In fact, it's mostly about self-love, right? Classic Natalie Lee. So (laughs) what is the key message you would like readers to take from feeling myself? I think the key message is that your sexuality, your sexual experiences, your gender is nothing to be ashamed of. It's to be spoken about it's to be proud of and I want people to just not feel ashamed anymore not feel ashamed for having a body not feel ashamed for having sex you know however you like to have sex whoever you like to have sex with that's not attached to your morality and for too long the link between women and sex has been negative Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be like that it really doesn't like let's just fucking enjoy it let's just not feel like it's something that we can't talk about perfect so now i take it i take it you're all sorted now and not still a work in progress right oh god never i will be i will be a work in progress till my dying day there's always shit in that closet to uncover definitely always absolutely <laughs> for all of us for all of us absolutely 
Feeling Myself, How I Shed My Shame, to find sexual freedom, and you can too. It's published by Vermillion on Thursday the 9th and available in all good bookshops. Natalie, we've talked about social media. Where can people find you there, please? Oh, so you can find me at Stalney Sunday, mostly on Instagram, actually. Come and find me over there. Let's have a chat. Let's connect. I'd love to see you. Brilliant. Thank you so much for chatting with me. Oh, thank you. That was really great. I really enjoyed that. Hello, Hannah here. I'm just popping in before this interview to say that I'm about to talk to Teresa Heskins about a new play, Tom, Dick and Harry, which is about the real-life escape from Stalag Luft III, a German prisoner of war camp for members of the RAF captured during the Second World War. Yes, if that sounds familiar, it is because it is the story told in The Great Escape, but it becomes obvious to me during this interview that not everyone has seen The Great Escape or indeed heard of the story of the escape spoiler if you listen to this interview you will find out what happens hi hannah here i am joined by Teresa heskins artistic director at the new vic theater in newcastle under lime and co-writer and director of a new play tom dick and harry hello Teresa. thank you for joining us hello I'm thinking I maybe don't even need to tell people what Tom, Dick and Harry is about. Maybe they'll just get it from the name. But here we are in a week that's got two bank holidays. What better to be talking about than The Great Escape, right? (laughs) Now, your play obviously isn't The Great Escape, but it is based on the true story of the escape from Stalag Luft III in 1944. Now... I don't think anyone's going to argue that The Great Escape is historically accurate, but for better or worse, that is the version that people know. So before I get on to what your version is, I wonder whether you think that might be a help or might be a hindrance promoting your play. I don't know. I've never seen it. I, I totally not? avoided it. No, I'd never seen it before. I wasn't really keen on seeing it, to be honest. And when we started working on this, I thought I'm just going to be the one in the room who doesn't know it and has never seen it. I've never read any of the books about it. So all I know about it is what I've found in the archives that we've been to. So all those primary sources that we've been researching in and listening to the voices of people who were there from oral history archives as well. I would say that's a much better source than The Great Escape, the film, for history. (laughs) Could you tell me sort of how you've gone into this story, how you've tackled it? We found these amazing documents at the National Archives. I I wasn't really expecting it, but the first one we opened had a big top secret stamp on it and a big in blue letters, not to be opened until 1992. I mean, I was really surprised at that because that meant that all the people who had told the story before us, Mm. they were doing it years before that. Mm. So that meant that what we were seeing was an insight into knowledge that people didn't necessarily have. And we found in those documents... Some amazing stuff that was really surprising. There was an introduction to one where somebody imagined what it might be like if anybody ever told the story. And he said, I hope if this story is ever told, they'll celebrate the spirit and organisation of the people who made the escape happen. And we thought, well, that really sounds like a bit of a mandate for us mm. and what we should do. So it's very much about the spirit of these people in adversity who come together and support each other to achieve something amazing. And it's also about the ingenuity, the amazing ingenuity of people who made compasses out of gramophone records and 
dies for clothes out of book bindings. It's, it's just extraordinary stuff that we found in there. But I suppose the thing that really surprised us and that we really wanted to bring across is what an international effort it was. Mm. It was service personnel from across the world who came together in that camp and made it happen. Um, and that was a remarkable discovery for us. We didn't, we didn't realise that. Can I ask why you decided to, to tackle it again in the first place? What it was that made you think this story can be looked at again? I think it was that, that sense of something that might be an impossible story to tell on stage mm. is always something that appeals to me. Catnip, I yeah. love doing novel adaptations and things because they cover just too much ground, too many characters, too big a story. You know, it shouldn't work on stage. So finding a way to make it work on stage but that makes it very exciting is the thing that I like doing. And it's and it's quite rare to do something on stage that's a big adventure, mm. that's you know full of plot and action. But it's what you find mostly more often on films than on stage. So it was that, that the challenge of telling that story on stage that really appealed to me we've got a cast of nine and there were 600 people in the camp but fortunately we've got 595 seats in our auditorium and so we're relying on those 595 people who come to see the show every night to help us escape (laughs) great oh my god i'm so up for this i'm gonna come when it's at ali pali (laughs) i'm gonna come I love a World War II story. I love a prison break story. I mean, if this also had a shipwreck in it, I think it would be the greatest story ever told. It's incredible. It's just got so much, like you say, there's so many elements of ingenuity, of cooperation, of determination and patience. You know, when you think about how long it took them to do just the most simple task, And that they just kept at it. I mean, arguably, they didn't have a lot else to do. But even so, to just keep going is just so impressive. It really surprised us that, that, as you say, that if they wanted to do something that needed a saw, for example, the first thing they'd have to do is make the saw. And even before that, they had to somehow source the stuff to make a saw out of. So extraordinary that they did that with so little available to them because they were in a prison camp and they were fairly deprived. Now, a friend of mine... Her granddad was in Stalag 3, yes, and he was supposed to go. And two nights before he was supposed to go, he developed pneumonia and he couldn't go. Now, that's a story that we talk about, you know, and for her, she wouldn't even be here. Or it's very unlikely she'd be here if he had gone. So it's very easy with a 21st century eye to look and say he had the lucky escape there by not going. But that's not how they looked at it, did they? They didn't have their eye on any more future than to get out, to cause as much disruption to the Germans as possible. And whether they lived or died wasn't really something they were thinking about. I wonder, with that in mind, we've got another war in Europe at the moment. Has that impacted at all your understanding or deepened your understanding or the actor's understanding when you're directing them about the mindset people are in in a war? Yeah, it's made it um, a much, I think it was a fairly profound play anyway, but it's made it much more profound and relevant to us. We've been very, very aware of that. One of the team on Saturday just happened to be doing something that involved a meeting with uh, a Ukrainian friend and the Red Cross was supporting them. And we've been talking to the Red Cross because they've allowed us to use their emblem in the in the show because it's so important. And they said to us right at the start, you know, we have to treat this emblem with respect because across the world it needs to signal to people 
that they can find support here. So how you use it in the play is really important to us. And things like the Geneva Convention that I, I didn't know about, that's kind of gives one hope, really, that nations might subscribe to rules mm. of war that involve treating people in a humanitarian way. All of that just suddenly feels so pertinent. Mm. I, I've never heard of the Geneva Convention. I wake up and listen to it on Radio 4, somebody talking about it almost every day now. But that sense also of solidarity across nations about how we can support each other globally to make a better world that kind of inspiration is really at the heart of it and feels really pertinent yeah it's so interesting isn't it because I've had lots of hypothetical conversations over the years with male friends of mine or male relatives of mine about you know if there was another war would you go Mm. and since the war in Ukraine has happened I've asked them again And they've all said suddenly it's made them think it feels less of a hypothetical question when it did before, because in the back of their mind, they were like, a European ground war is never going to happen again. So I'm never going to have to think about it. So I'm just going to say yes or no and move on. But yeah, that there is such bravery out there. It's yeah, it's incredible. Yeah, it's really surprised actually to talk to some of those people, because of course, the the people in that camp, as you know, from your friend's grandfather, they, they still regarded themselves as serving Air Force personnel, and they regarded it as their duty to escape. So they were still fully paid members of the armed services. And we found doing this, we've had contact with a number of RAF, uh, a squadron leader and a wing commander who've come and helped us square bash to the cast and taught them how to salute and stuff, but also told us about their tour of operations in Afghanistan and, and experiences like that. And it has left me with so much respect for what people do um, to defend our freedoms. Actually, when you look at the Stalaglyph 3, in comparison to some of the other things that we know historically about prisoner of war camps, so say, for example, what was happening in prisoner of war camps in Japan, Stalaglyph 3 doesn't look that bad. It looks like somewhere you could safely ride out the war if you wanted to, but they had no interest in that at all. The support from the Red Cross meant that they had provisions and they were allowed to build a theatre and they were allowed to, you know, the, the Red Cross again ensured that they had hobbies and interests and that they had access to hygiene facilities and things so they were relatively well looked after but they were still being deprived of their freedom and they were mm. still on very low rations yeah. and they were not able to do the thing they wanted to do which was to spend time with their family and friends at home and defend their family and friends mm. at home yeah have you had any contact with any family of people from from the camp no we we haven't and i i we, we were really in a quandary as to whether we should or not. And we thought one of the dangers will be, because we're telling a story about quite a lot of people, that's quite a lot of family to be able to communicate yeah. with and to be able to honour. And so, in fact, we decided that we wouldn't base our characters on real people. A little too challenging to make up, because necessarily, although it's all based on uh, documentary details, we do have to make up some details of things that they might have said or done. Mm. And, um, and also, we've had to conflate lots of things that different people did into our small cast of nine so no no we, we haven't but I think that we will start to meet people as yeah, the I think show's will, yeah. on stage and, and um, I think I'm looking forward to that a little bit anxious now obviously there's something caperish about it and it's I imagine that you could well make a lot of gallows humor and it could be a lot of fun but ultimately at its heart it is a tragedy when I was doing some reading about this, I was doing some reading about Roger Bushell, Big X. He's, he was the, the head guy for anyone listening who doesn't know. And he was one of the men shot after the escape. 
in his youth, he had been like sweethearts with Georgina Curzon, the socialite. Her father hadn't given them permission to marry and, in fact, made her marry somebody else. And after Roger Bushell died, every year on his birthday, she put a note in the Times and in memoriam to him that said, Love is immortal, Georgie. And it's, yeah, it's the most incredibly moving story. And he is just one of 50 blokes that died in this. That's just one out of 50 stories. So how do you get through the capery bit knowing that this is not going to end well? Yeah, I spoiler alert. Because uh, when I took it on, I thought, I thought they'd all escaped. You know, I didn't realise that that... Oh, sorry, I'll, I will have to put a spoiler alert on the top of this for anyone who doesn't know. So, oh, so I was devastated to realise that they didn't get out and it wasn't a happy ending entirely. I mean, so for some people, it, it was it was a happy ending, including some of the ones who stayed. It is interesting, isn't it? It's that, that little message that we had, celebrate the spirit and ingenuity, because they were having to... One of the things that the escape did for them, I think while they were in that camp, was keep their morale up and give them something to live for. And also, all the other things they had going on were part of keeping fit and healthy so they could do that escape. They were doing gymnastics and playing football and boxing, and they were they were rehearsing Pygmalion and a review called Girls, Girls, Girls. <laughs> Those girls were beautiful. And so we've put on stage quite a lot of that. They're using it as cover for the escape. So we've got a gorgeous scene where they, they all do a, a brilliant um, vault horse uh, acrobatics routine that's so much fun. And we've got the lucky number rumba where Carmen Veranda... Um, entertains the troops and and and, um, and all of these things were the sort of things they were doing as cover for escape activities so embracing all of that has been tremendous and and to be honest that that challenge of how do you tell the stories of these deaths in a way that is bearable on stage mm. has, has been quite tricky I think we found our way through I think we've we've just had some people in watching this afternoon for the first time and they laughed three quarters of the way through and then there were tears and I think that's 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 the perfect so, yes, that's perfect to me. Lots of fun. And we do all want that emotional engagement because it's yeah. a real story and we treat it with respect. Um so so it was it was good to see that. Because I think that's that's the point, isn't it? It's it's about the trying. There is an argument to be said they were successful. They did cause a lot of seventy six of them had to be hunted down, albeit some were easier to find yeah. than others, and three actually escaped fully and were never found so yes in that way they were successful it's just not like I say what we perceive as a 21st century you know success for us would be they got home here we are talking about them aren't we yeah. that's it, I'm just realizing it as, as you're talking you're, you're right it, the you know the escape was not an entire success although they did preoccupy troops across Germany and they did distract those troops from the frontline activity that they might have been engaged in but also the fact that we're still talking about them decades later yeah this idea that spirit and camaraderie and collaboration working together mm. can make something huge and important happen and give people hope and inspiration that is a positive result in itself yeah absolutely I really look forward to seeing it. Now, you are opening on the 10th of June, which is, yeah, it's really soon. How are things? Well, we're, we're just, we've just this afternoon had our final rehearsal room run. As I speak to you, the rehearsal room is just at the end of this corridor. 
members of the team are taking all the set and all the props and the sound and costume that we've been working with over to the auditorium. So we're just about to move into the theatre. And tomorrow we start technical rehearsals where we put all the lights and sound and everything into the show. So quite exciting. It's always a lovely bit where you see it come together, but also quite frightening because you're leaving the safety and escaping (laughs) to the big wide world. And then you are on to the 9th of July and then you transfer down to the Alexandra Palace Theatre on July the 26th to August yeah. the 28th. Can I just ask you in your in your job as artistic director what else you've got going on? We're a busy theatre. We um we do quite a lot of work for family audiences and so we're just at the, we've just announced our Christmas show Alice in Wonderland. I've sold half the tickets for the first performance all on the day of who can be thinking about Christmas now? <laughs> I can't even think about next week. <laughs> And we're just also about to announce quite a, a special thing of a revival of a show that was quite dear to people, but I can't say what it is yet. We could just leave it and people can follow you on Twitter and then they will get the news when it comes. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much for this. This has been really interesting. I love, love, love a bit of war chat. So this has been fantastic. Thank you for knowing so much about it. You're amazing. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Welcome to Rated or Dated. Hannah, what film that we watched this week meant I got to enjoy the second best Al Capone? Indeed. This week we watched The Untouchables, directed by Brian De Palma, written by David Mamet, scored by Enrico Morricone, dressed by Giorgio Armani, (laughs) and starring Robert De Niro as Al Capone. And yet, and yet... One of the first things anyone will tell you about The Untouchables is that Sean Connery's Irish accent is utterly indistinguishable (laughs) from his Scottish one. And indeed his Russian one. So let that be a lesson about how bad that accent is. (laughs) Not the worst accent in the film, mind, but we'll get on to that. Released this month in 1987, The Untouchables made $106.2 million worldwide and received mostly positive reviews. It was nominated for four Oscars, Connery winning the Best Supporting Actor Mm -hmm. Oscar. And whenever I remind people of that fact, they always have that, I'm totally going to Google that later, look on their (laughs) face. So here endeth the lesson about how bad that accent is. Nonetheless, Connery does get almost all of the best lines Mm -hmm. and many are well quoted, if not in common usage. Bringing a knife to a gunfight and here endeth the lesson, for example. Or, if you're me, all right, enough of this running shit. (laughs) The film's most famous scene on the stairs at Chicago's Union Station was itself an homage to the Odessa Steppe sequence in Eisenstein's The Battleship Potemkin, and De Niro's performance as the world's most famous mob boss is considered by many, although none that you'll find on this podcast, (laughs) to be best Capone ever. The plot, which bears not a great deal of resemblance (laughs) to historical fact, goes thus. A decade of the world's most interesting social experiment, Prohibition, has proved lucrative for Chicago mobsters and violence is out of control. Al Capone is a bad bastard and needs (laughs) catching. For anyone thinking that this might be one of those films that glamorises organised crime, De Palma makes it clear early. The film opens with a pampered Capone surrounded by lackeys and arse kissers. And 30 seconds later, a little girl blows up. 
given the job of putting Capone away is Treasury Guy Elliot Ness, played by Kevin Costner. The police are corrupt as fuck, so he seeks out a special team of incorruptibles, sorry, untouchables. There's a wise old beat cop with a bottle of whiskey hidden in the oven. That's Connery. There's a hotshot hairy one who's <laughs> pretending not to be Italian. That's Andy Garcia. Wait a minute, out of the three of us, which is a hotshot hairy one? <laughs> I think it's you. Totally me. <laughs> and there's a geeky one with a pipe who might as well be wearing a target on his shirt. He's played by Charles Martin Smith. And in case you were wondering, The Untouchables has but one woman in it, but I suppose it is of some consolation that it's Patricia Clarkson. She plays Ness's wife. So, Mickey, this film has two old men sporting the worst Irish accents ever committed to film, (laughs) kicking each other in the balls in a dark alleyway. What's not to like, right? (laughs) Well, I have nothing to add to the what's not to like. Yeah, totally. I've absolutely no powder dry this week. I fucking love this film. I have it on the divider. I've watched it many, many, many times. That was going to be my questions. How many times do you think you've watched The Untouchables? Definitely, like, more than 20, I think. Yeah, I would say between the ages of about 14 and when I left home, I probably watched The Untouchables, yeah, probably a dozen times, and then I will have seen it a few more times on top since then. It is basically a Western, (laughs) so Hannah Dunleavy written all over it. There's a lot of Western elements in it, I think. What's interesting about it is that it actually is really nestled into my brain. Elliot nestled. (laughs) In as much as when I hear the word henchman, I always see Frank Nitti. He is the stereotypical henchman for me. He really upsets me. He really upsets me. His face looks like it's melting. Billy Drago, absolutely just sinister as fuck in this. When I went to the opera on a press trip, about 10 years ago and we were in a box rather than thinking I'm in a box at the opera I was thinking fuck me I'm in the untouchables (laughs) and every time I see a woman with a buggy trying to get up the stairs you know on the underground or at train station I always think of the untouchables it is pretty burned into my brain it is excellent that scene at the end is an absolute corker isn't it it is such a corker Shall we talk about Kevin Costner? Because an interesting thought crossed my mind when I was watching this. And that was now that he's sort of vanished and become somewhat of a uh, a supporting actor at best, mm. you know, actually, I think that I buy Costner as Elliot Ness a lot more now than I ever did in the past. I think he's kind of perfect for it because he's, I never understood this at the time because obviously huge fan of Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And I will have watched them that way round, Robin Hood yeah. before The Untouchables because I was only 10 when The Untouchables came out. But the fact that housewives were like fucking sloshy knickered about him and I was like, what? I don't understand. Why does my mum fancy Kevin Costner? I don't see it at all. And actually watching The Untouchables as myself, a 45-year-old woman, my knickers were fine, but I could see that he was handsome, but he's not too handsome for the role. You can see that he is, he's hes like self-possessed and calm and dapper. I mean, Giorgio Armani helped there. And I can absolutely see that he is perfect for Elliot Ness. Yeah, he's much more of an everyman now mm. than he was. That was a know. much quicker way of saying it that didn't refer to my knickers, but, you know, keep that gold in. <laughs> Sorry. But yeah, he is great, as is Robert De Niro, although I will say, obviously, 
he has an unfair disadvantage, Stephen Graham, because he gets to play Al Capone for longer, as in for more hours, mm. but also for a, for a wider period of his life. Yeah. But yeah, Stephen Graham's the best Al Capone for me. Absolutely. Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm sorry again, I did not keep powder dry on this particular point. And you and I have discussed this lots. And whilst I was late to Boardwalk Empire, having only watched it this year, I'd seen most of the Stephen Graham stuff because you kept sending it to me. (laughs) So I'd already decided that, yeah, but De Niro is thundering as Capone in this. And he's got so little screen time, really. And yet he still manages to dominate and he did proper De Niro didn't he like he was insistent that he wore the same boxer shorts as Al Capone even though you never see him without his trousers on and he properly Mm. like lived the role I don't think he killed anyone but he properly inhabited that role I saw two interesting things both on the Wikipedia page so they didn't take much of my research and one was that Robert De Niro said he wanted to put on 30 pounds to play Al Capone I just thought wanted such an interesting you know (laughs) But there's a really interesting story about how Brian De Palma wasn't sure that Robert De Niro would say yes, so he got a backup. Bob Hoskins. Oh, oh, a little cuddly Al Capone. <laughs> yeah, although Bob Hoskins always essentially just plays a variation of Bob Hoskins, much as I love him. So him and Sean Connery, I mean, together. <laughs> when Robert De Niro signed on, Brian De Palma sent Bob Hoskins a note saying, we don't need you. And $200,000. Oh. Which is what they would have paid him. And apparently Bob Hoskins replied, that's no problem, Brian. If you've got anybody else you don't want me to pay, to play, <laughs> I, will, I will happily take your money. There yeah. he is. There's Hoskins. That would have been a very different film, wouldn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Bob Hoskins is always for me. And I know he's played kind of ruffians, but he's always a ruffian with a heart of gold. He's Roger Rabbit. He's who framed Roger Rabbit to me. So. Yeah. Yeah, old mermaid. He's in mermaids as well, isn't he? Because De Niro is sinister as fuck. That baseball yeah. bat scene, I still mm. have to sort of. You don't actually see very much, but the the inference of it and him and his sort of bulk and the way he bigs himself up and is very sinister is is very well done. Come on, James Gandolfini must have studied some of that because there's a lot of Tony Soprano there. Yeah, there's a lot of the sort of downwards, the lower half of his face all pointing downwards. <laughs> yeah. Just, I don't know how to explain it, but everything is like sinking A- on his angry face. Angry jowls. Yeah, yeah, really. Historically, this is sort of a nonsense, <laughs> obviously. And yet you're still a fan. Exactly. Elliot Ness shouldn't get as much credit as he does no. for bringing, for at the fall of Al Capone, obviously. There's loads of things that raid in Canada didn't take place. But I also think it's not especially historically accurate in the sense of if you take that raid, this massive shipment that is coming, it's like three lorries Mm. of whiskey. And that's ludicrous, given that we've just been told that Al Capone is turning over three million pounds a year. It's ludicrous to suggest that any booze shipment would be that small, I thought, anyway. Agreed. It did make me laugh because at the end of the film, it says all of the characters are fictional. If you recognise anyone, then, well, sorry, that was bad bad on our part. We didn't mean it. And I'm like, hang on. Although, in fairness, they have really twisted the truth quite a lot here. Yeah. There's a couple of things to say about Elliot Ness. Number one, if you go to his Wikipedia page, it has just one of the most beautiful photographs on it. I think it's somewhere middle America in... In later life, he ran to be mayor 
and there is a photograph of a young black girl and the photo is taken in the 70s so she is very 70s fashion she's holding a tennis racket and on the wall behind her there's vote nest for mayor which has been there since the 50s painted on the side of the wall and it is a chef's kiss beautiful photograph and the second thing is to say that later in life he was done for drunk driving oh oh mr ness you absolute rascal yeah well that's it and i think you know and this is clear in Boardwalk Empire and anything about prohibition, and you refer to it as the world's greatest social experiment. There's all this violence caused by not letting people have a drink, and everyone really wants a drink. How can we stop it? Well, let's add some police violence into that. What about letting Mm. people have a drink? Absolutely not. Yeah. And everyone wants to drink, you know. Malone's got his whiskey in his oven. Wallace, when he he shoots a billion people because he's on a rampage, he then like, oh, the whiskey's pouring out the side of the van, going to have mm. a bit of that. And when the reporter at the end asks Ness what he's going to do when they repeal Prohibition, he's like, I'm going to have a drink. It just feels really pointless. I mean, it is really pointless and it doesn't attempt to d- sort of tackle that as a question in any way. Perhaps because it just assumes that everyone's going to know it was really pointless. Yeah. You say that, but there are pe- people die in this in an attempt to defend the law. And that was why in 1930, when people are starting talking about overturning it. What was that for? Yeah. Oh, that's the question yeah. that people asked. Why did my husband die then if we're just going to change this law? And whether or not Al Capone wanted the law to change himself is arguable because he was making a fuckload of money out of. So, oh, yeah, I'd have, I'd have thought he wouldn't want the law to change. Mm. Yeah. He seemed to enjoy being a badden, did Al Capone. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is a really interesting sort of period of social history but I I mean I actually think this tells you very very little about it because it doesn't even really tell you what the most interesting thing about Al Capone is this is why everyone should watch Boardwalk Empire actually because it does tackle it sort of the most interesting aspects to him was that he built an empire that was it that was interesting Mm. you know and that crime actually was entirely revolutionized during that period but anyway can we talk about the style of the film because despite watching it it's so stylized and it always throws me off when i start watching it again i'm like oh yeah it's it's basically theater isn't it yeah well it's mammoth yeah, as well exactly yeah i mean mammoth is just extraordinarily brilliant dialogue writer and i think yeah some of the dialogue in this is is just absolutely beautiful and connery does mostly get it as that sort of hackneyed wise older you know the bit where they're all in the cabin and he takes it in turns to give them advice. I'm like, oh, he's a right bossy fucker, isn't he? He's just... And also he's dangerous as fuck because when he lines up that guy, albeit he's dead, yeah. to shoot him, that bullet would have come straight <laughs> in the window and killed at least one of them. I mean, I don't know why I managed to, probably because I saw it young, why I managed to sort of gloss over all of these ridiculous things mm. that happen in it. And also I would say gloss over like how little space there is for women in this because, albeit... It was the 1930s. Women did exist. We were we were in offices. We were walking the streets. We weren't just dragging buggies up the stairs or being someone's wife. Until this very podcast, basically all I did was shout silently, my baby, in slow motion. <laughs> my baby! Uh, I love that scene so much. There's, I bet there's a BuzzFeed article about that kid now. Do you think he's like the Nirvana kid and he's just really unhappy and about to sue Brian De Palma? 
Yeah, I mean, he did have a nappy on in it, so, you know, possibly not. But Oh, yeah, yeah. that is true. He wasn't fully nude. The tension is still there, even though I've seen that scene so many times. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think it's partly because you're just like, hurry the fuck up! (laughs) It's that sort of tension. It is... Trying to think of another example. Actually, Argo, which isn't necessarily a great film, Alan Arkin aside, it has that exactly. Just take the plane, fucking take off. Yeah. If he dragged that buggy up the stairs, that pram up the stairs, the first time he saw it, none of this would have happened. She does. I mean, I mean, she's got a lot on. She's got two suitcases and a buggy. But she, given she wants to be on a train in seven minutes, she doesn't half make a meal of it. She like, I think she's leaving. Oh, I don't think okay. she's arriving. But I she says, that's... "I didn't think, I didn't think we were going to make it." Yeah, perhaps that's another platform. I don't know. Yeah, probably more than one platform at Chicago train station. But she goes and she puts her suitcases down. Then she talks to the kid for ages. I'm just, just fucking, just get on with it, missus. Come on. Yeah. So, do you have anything else you wanted to say, Mick? No, thanks for picking it. I had a lovely time. <laughs> Great. Yeah, uh, me too. So I do have a question, actually, because you mentioned there that there are, there are things within The Untouchables that is usually a massive red light for a Hannah Dunleavy, okay? For our hotshot hairy one, she usually is like, absolutely <laughs> not. And that is historical inaccuracies and gaping plot holes. You're usually like, nope, turn off. Do you think nostalgia plays a part in your love of the untouchables undoubtedly nostalgia plays a part in it yes but i would say i do love mamet he's just incredible so i do think that i forgive more because when it shines it it really really does shine Mm -hmm. so yeah i still think it's great cinema it's great film And also he's got like a kind of built-in excuse in it. He writes in a built-in excuse, you know, that's the Chicago way. (laughs) That's how we're doing it. We we aren't necessarily adhering to actual rules of historical accuracy. That's the Chicago way. I don't like your methods. You're not from Chicago. Exactly. So, Mickey, (laughs) pointless to do this really, but rated or dated? Rated. Yeah, I loved it. I had a great time. Ditto. What are we watching next week? I have no idea. It's Jen's choice and she has not filled us in on what it's going to be. So I thought what we might do is get the listeners excited for two weeks time, which is my pick. And we're in 1997 and we're, we're having both Nicolas Cage and John Travolta face off. Wow. Face off. <laughs> <laughs> we are getting people excited. Maybe it's not excited, but Frank Nitti will reappear in this podcast in a couple of weeks as well. Oh, oh no. Not Billy Drago. Okay. Frank Nessie. Okay, because Billy Drago upsets me. (laughs) Standard issue for all women.